Good morning. My name is Jody Holtz. The scripture reading today comes from the New Testament book of Luke. I'll be reading chapter 5, verses 27 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to them. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jody. I think one of the gifts that the internet has given to the world is memes. Uh, I love memes. And for those of you, many of you know what memes are, but for those of you that don't know what memes are, um, they're kind of like comic strips, only in comic strips, you know, the author draws the picture and then writes their own taglines. Memes function as templates in the sense that they take pre-existing images or screenshots and then people attach a phrase or whatever tagline they want to put on those pre-existing images. So memes function kind of like templates in that way. And, and I am part of this extremely niche Facebook group called Simpsons Calvinist Posting, which combines the Simpsons with Reformed theology, okay? So this is really geeky, all right? But what they do on this Facebook group is they have meme this Fridays, so the mods of the group will post a picture on Friday and then they'll say, meme this. And then people will submit all their different memes that they made out of the picture. And then they'll repost the winning meme that they think is the best one. So it's just kind of this fun thing. So for instance, they'll post a picture like this with Mo and this assessor looking up at the you know, hole in the ceiling with a toilet up on top. And they said, meme this. And so the winning memer did this as the meme. So this is like the prosperity teacher pointing to the promises of the prosperity gospel only to find out that the actual prosperity gospel is heresy and lies and a toilet, okay? You following this so far? It's very niche, okay? So if you're left behind, maybe you'll get one of these, okay? But uh, for, uh, here's another one. Here's like Homer looking kind of sneaky, and there were actually two winning submissions for this one. So the first one is this. Joshua says, guys, don't take any of the things devoted to destruction when we sack Jericho. And taken over here being like, right. Joshua, right? Remember, Achan was the guy who hid the goods in his tent when they were told not to steal any of the goods from the city of Jericho after they were about to take it. So another winning submission, uh, Ehud, moments before he used his left hand to draw the sword from his right thigh to kill King Eglon, and he's saying, I have a message from the Lord from you, right? This is from the book of Judges, and anyway, okay, sorry, it's a lot of niche, so, you know, yeah. some, some people get some, and this actually is a a fabulous violent story in the Bible. So if, you, if you're feeling like you need a violence fill, like read this story um, of this assassination. Okay, I love this one. You should get this one. Okay, you, I love this one. So Homer is closing the garage door on his neighbor Ned Flanders, and you kind of see the progression of the garage door going down until he completely shuts Flanders out. So the memer compares Homer to me and Flanders as the Holy Spirit and then he closes the garage door on the Holy Spirit because we want to justify our sin, right? Like, I don't want you, Holy Spirit. Like, I'm fine in my sin, right? Close the garage door on the sin. You getting it so far? You kind of understand that one? Okay, good, good. Okay, this one is um, the Santa's little helper. The family dog is punching Homer in this family Polaroid. And so the meme with this is, is uh, King David getting punched by 
the phrase, you're the man, right? So this is probably after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Like, you're not the man, right? David, like, boom. Like, you are not awesome, right? That, that might, is what we might say. So anyway. Okay, I like this one. It's a Homer wrestling uh, a dummy that looks just like Homer. And so someone memed this as Paul and Paul, and Romans 7 is where Paul is wrestling with the sinful nature and says, I don't do what I want to do, but I do what I don't want to do, and the sinful nature is messing me up, and he's wrestling. So that's kind of, I like that one. Okay, here's another one with Homer's head, you know, expanding like a balloon. And then Paul in the Bible says, knowledge without love puffs up. So this is Homer's head puffing up. Knowledge without love puffs up, which makes sense. If you've got someone who's got a lot of knowledge but no love, uh, they become arrogant and inflated and all sorts of other bad things. Okay, we're going to end with my absolute favorite, okay? My absolute favorite. So this is the, the cut scene. So if you've ever seen this scene in The Simpsons, Abe Simpson emerges from a hedge and he's whistling and he does what he does. He does a 180. So he comes out of the hedge, he's like, and he literally does a 180 and goes, and like walks back into the hedge, okay? Comes out, does a 180. You remember this moment, Dan? Yeah, he's, he knows. So someone memed this as Joseph is minding his own business until he gets hit on by Potiphar's wife and he walks right back into the hedge again, right? <laughs> I love that. Uh, Potiphar's wife, okay, I'm out of here, right? <laughs> I love that one. So that was the winning meme. So you can kind of understand, like I say, it's, it's kind of niche because it's Reformed theology and, and sometimes they even get so far into the weeds of Reformed theology that I'm like, I don't even know what they're talking about. And I'll have to like Google the words. And, anyway, but these are memes and memes function like templates. They have a picture, and then the memers, or the people who are making the meme, will put the taglines on the meme, or put the sayings, or the phrases, or the labels on the meme. And today, we're going to look at Jesus' life, and we're going to see that he is holding out his life as a template for his followers. He is extending his life as a template for his followers to build their lives upon that template. So we're going to first look at our gathering scripture that Casey read. So while you're turning there, we're going to do a little bit of review. Jesus is commissioned for his earthly ministry when he's baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. From there, he goes out into the wilderness where he faces down Satan and temptation and evil for 40 days and 40 nights. And after winning the battle against temptation, he comes out of the wilderness and goes into the city of Capernaum. The, the, he goes to the shores of the northern part of the Sea of Galilee and extends his call to his initial disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And after he gathers his initial disciples to himself, he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, which is in this region of Galilee. And so he's making his hometown debut, his return to his hometown, and it's when he goes back to his hometown that our passage in Mark picks up. It says, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Which makes a whole lot of sense that Jesus would not find a very sympathetic audience when he returns to his hometown. Because he is on his tour proclaiming that he indeed is the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the world. And all these people from Nazareth are looking at this now-grown Jesus, proclaiming to be the Messiah, and they're remembering when he was running around in diapers. 
And they're remembering when he was running around with his high school buddies and growing up, right? And you're like, there's no way this man who we knew as a little child can be the savior of the world. And then someone begins laughing at him because they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is just the boy of Joseph and Mary. Remember that carpenter Joseph in our town? This is their son. Like, really? That's their son? Like, yeah, this is his boy. Remember him from third grade? And they're all like, oh, there's no way he's the Messiah. And they begin scoffing at him. Now, what's interesting is that they identify Jesus as the son of the carpenter Joseph. Because in Greek, that word carpenter is the Greek word tekton. And tekton means builder. So Joseph was a builder. He was a tradesman. He was trained in the, in the craft. And a lot of translations translate it as carpenter, but there's really not very much wood in the Holy Land. There's very little wood, but there is a ton of stone. And so many people believe that Jesus' dad, Joseph, and then Jesus himself was actually a stonemason. They were tradesmen. They were builders. Joseph would have likely been a tradesman because of the amount of stone in the Holy Land. And Jesus, being a Jewish boy, would have studied or apprenticed under his dad to learn the trade of being a stonemason as well, working the family biz as a mason. So what Jesus does as a stonemason, learning from his dad, apprenticing from his dad, is he would have been familiar with templates. He would have been familiar with building plans and early blueprints. I don't know what they had back then, but we have blueprints now. He would have been familiar with those kind of building instructions with those templates that builders have to use to construct various things, to build various things. And what Jesus is doing is he, as a builder, is taking the template of his life and he's turning it around to his followers and saying, use this template to build your life upon. Jesus is almost going to his disciples and he's saying, from one builder to another builder, build your life on the template that is my life. From one builder to another, build your life on the template that is my life. He is taking the template of his life and he's extending it to his disciples and saying, build your life according to the template of my life. You following me? That's what he's doing. And what I want to do is I'm going to take this week and next week, we have these two weeks before Lent begins, and I'm preaching this series called Organic Vision because I want to apprise you all and bring you all in to these themes that the Lord has just seemingly been drawing out of us lately. And I call it Organic Vision because I feel in many ways like it's God just organically drawing these themes out of us. And I call it Vision because these are big ideas and these are big picture things for us as a church and for our future, right? Like, you talk about vision as a preferred picture of our future. I feel like the Lord has just been giving us these pictures of what our future could be like and what he would love to see out of us as a, as a body here at Grace 242. So I'm going to take the next two weeks to cover these two themes that God has been simply drawing out of us and saying, I want you to go here, Grace 242. I mean, the leadership and I sense this leadership in God's, or this God's leadership in this direction of these two themes, and I want to loop you all in. So as many of you know, we are part of a denomination called ECO, a covenant order of evangelical Presbyterians. It's really simple and quick, easily said, just like Presbyterians like it. Um, not uh, ECO, evangelical covenant order, is maybe the way to remember it. But um, So we are part of this denomination which functions as like a network of churches. Okay? And that network of churches or that denomination is subdivided into regional sections called presbyteries. And so we are in Presbytery of the Harvest, which comprises Wisconsin and Illinois and Indiana. 
And all of the pastors that were part of the pulpit swap that we just completed here, they're all my friends, and they are all pastors of churches in Presbytery of the Harvest, okay? So this is our geographical part of, of ECO. And Presbytery of the Harvest has a unique offering in the sense that every year, Presbytery of the Harvest chooses two pastors to whom they extend a scholarship. And the purpose of the scholarship is to help their pastors lead their churches in the unique vision and direction that their church is being called to, okay? And this year, I'm grateful to Presbytery of the Harvest because they've chosen me as one of those two pastors to whom they wanted to extend the scholarship opportunity. And so I had to, yeah, thanks, Ann, thank you. So um, it's really based on merit, so, you know, no, I'm totally, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> so the, <laughs> yeah, um, so they've chosen me. So um, you have to put together a proposal of how you would use this money, and then the council of the presbytery has to sign off on it. And so uh, our mission statement here at Grace 242 is Grace 242 exists to make disciples and grow disciples. And I'll tell you, this is one of the reasons why I'm here at Grace 242, is that you have gotten it right. You have named discipleship as the mission, right? Discipleship is the mission, and Grace 242 has recognized that that ought to be our mission as well, that the great commission of replicating disciples for Jesus is the mission. And that's one of the reasons why I'm here. And so I have chosen to and proposed to take part in what's called a learning community with a ministry called 3DM or 3D Movements, all right? So this learning community has three essential parts to it, okay? The first part is the uh, weekly discipleship coaching for the pastor. So starting this week, um, I'll begin a weekly meeting um, and we'll have uh, coaching together and, and share kind of our lives and checking up on one, each other, uh, on one another. There's accountability there. There's assignments that are a part of that. That's one of the pillars that I'll be participating in this weekly discipleship coaching. Secondly, um, there is an annual pastor and spousal retreat, which I'm really looking forward to, um, you know, to actually take Morgan along and go on a, a spiritual retreat together. Like, I don't actually, I don't think we've ever done something like faith-based that's just Morgan and I together. So I'm really looking forward to doing that. Um, when you go on these retreats, you're with part of the people who are also leaders in the learning community, and so you're getting to build community together and, and simply be with one another. And then the third part of the learning community is that there are these training sessions, these immersions is what they call them, and they take place every six months, so twice a year. And um, you go, they call them immersions because they drop you right into the middle of an environment where discipleship in the way of Jesus is already taking place. So the whole point of it is not just to fill your head with knowledge, but to drop you in the midst of where it's already happening so that you get to experience what it's like to be part of a disciple-making culture. And many of you know that a team of people from our church just got back to from our first immersion. Now, me getting to participate in all this is a total blessing, and I could not be more grateful but it's all the more effective when you are able to participate with people from your church. And so I could not be more grateful to the team from our church, including Katie Hartline and Jody Holtz, Pam Komarowski, Lisa Johnson, and Ann and Jeff Sidola, who have said, yes, Bill, I'll be part of this two-year process, who have sacrificed time, uh, vacation, paychecks, you know, um, unpaid time off, um, time with their families, and who are going to be sacrificing all the time that it takes not only to do the immersions, but to shepherd the plan that we're working on as a learning community over the course of these two years. And so this team of, from our church, this learning community, just got back from our first immersion, which took place at City Church of Compton in Compton, California, and which is like a suburb of Los Angeles. 
And I chose City Church for many reasons. Um, in many ways, even though we're in very different contexts, City Church is a lot like us in that they are a church plant and they are in the first decade of their life as a church. Um, they also are like us in that the stated mission is the replication of disciples for Jesus. And also, too, the communal aspect of City Church is very much in the, in the vein of what we are trying to build and create here at Grace 242. But the largest reason why I chose City Church is City Church is pastored by a man by the name of Pat and his wife, Julie Dirksy. And Pat and Julie and I all are Oostburg natives. We went to Oostburg High School. And Pat and I actually grew up in Hingham Reformed Church. So we had the same home church. And when I was a senior in high school, I actually had Pat and Julie, they were newly married, I actually had them as Sunday school teachers when I was a senior in high school. So there's this pre-existing relationship that goes back a long way. And so I chose City Church because of the pre-existing relationship and because in many ways, Grace 242 shares a common bond with this church plant in the middle of Compton. And one of the hugest blessings that I had as we were in that immersion is we were given tons of space as a team to evaluate and dream and pray about our church here at Grace 242. And I just got to sit back and watch as the Lord drew out these themes for us as a church. And one of the themes, now you're, you're not going to be surprised that this is no shocker to this, okay? But one of the themes that he drew out as we sat there is this theme of discipleship, okay? I told you you're not going to be surprised. But when we say discipleship, we mean a life-on-life multiplication of a follower of Jesus. When we say discipleship, we mean the pouring of an experienced Jesus follower into the life of a new Jesus follower, all right? And so this theme of discipleship takes the form of followers following behind the tecton Jesus who is giving us his template and saying, build your life upon my life. That's what we're talking about, is an experienced tecton, an experienced follower of Jesus saying, Build, my, build your life upon my life. All right. A follower of Jesus taking their life lived for Jesus, turning it around to a disciple and saying, build your life upon the template of my life. That's what we're talking about when we say discipleship. And we're going to pick back up with our scripture today in Luke 5, 27. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi is the disciple Matthew, okay, he also goes by the name Matthew, and he would have had his tax collecting booth or his customs booth set up on this road in between Capernaum and Bethsaida, and he would have had his booth set up right outside the city of Capernaum, because if you notice, Capernaum is in Herod Antipas's territory, and Bethsaida is in Herod Philip's territory, and as goods were transported between those two cities, Matthew would have taken a toll or taken a customs fee off of those goods being transported between the two territories. Matthew would have been a free agent for the Roman Empire because he would have been taking the tax for the Roman Empire, but how he made his money was skimming off the top. He would have inflated the tax price beyond what the empire required so that he would have some take-home pay when he took that tax. So Jesus found Matthew at his tax booth outside the city of Capernaum, and here's what happens. Jesus says, come follow me, and here's Matthew's response. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Matthew held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Matthew's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. So Jesus invites this tax collector, Matthew, 
into his sphere, into his relational sphere, and that is something that no other rabbi would have even dreamed of doing in Jesus' day. I mean, Jesus is off the chain here by extending a call of discipleship to Matthew because as a tax collector, Matthew would have been extremely uh, looked down upon. Matthew would have been considered very untrustworthy. Again, he made his money by artificially inflating the tax price so that he could skim some off the top. Here's how tax collectors were viewed in Jesus' day. Rabbis taught that synagogues could not accept contributions for the poor from tax collectors since their money was assumed to be illegally earned. Like all of their, it's like a bookie, right? Like everyone knows how they're making their money. It's ill-gotten, right? So rabbis would not have even accepted contributions from tax collectors because it would have been considered to be dirty money. Furthermore, they also taught that if a tax collector entered your home, everyone and everything in it automatically became unclean. So when Matthew would have entered a home, that home would have automatically been declared ceremonially unclean because Matthew is distrusted. He is uh, the dregs of society. Furthermore, the Jews hated tax collectors because they were viewed as people who were colluding with an oppressive Roman Empire. They were traitors because they were aiding and abetting a Roman Empire that was oppressing God's Jewish people. All right? This is the view that people had of tax collectors of the day. And so this is total in contrast to whom the rabbis would have invited to be their disciples. The normal rabbis of the day would have never called someone like Matthew to be their disciple. But yet Jesus goes straight to the most marginalized in the society and the least likely candidate to become a disciple. Now, here's how the Jewish boys' education system worked, okay? So Jewish boys, up until they were 12 years old, would go to the synagogue and they would study the Torah. And this was called Beth Sefer, okay? So from young to age 12, they would go to the synagogue and they would study Torah. And that would be like the lowest educational requirement for Jewish boys, okay? So we could compare that to our elementary, middle, and high school because that's the lowest bar we've set for education when it comes to our students here in America. So at age 12, they would have left to go work with the family business, all right? So once you reach age 12, you've met the lowest bar. Most of the kids leave and go work with the family businesses. However, the most gifted or the best students would, have invited to be, would be invited to continue their education in Beth Midrash, okay? So in Beth Midrash, this is like the next level up. You would not only learn the Torah, but you'd begin to memorize the Torah, and you would begin to debate the Torah and de determine the meanings of the Torah. And so this would be like our undergraduate degree. It's a, a, an elective education beyond what the expectation of society is. Then from there, there's another weed down in the sense that the best of the best students, so very small number now, would have been invited to continue their education in what's called Beth Talmud. Talmud meaning disciple. So this would be like our graduate degree and above, or maybe like our PhD or our postdoctoral work. Right? The best of the best students at this point will get to continue their education, only now, rather than learning at the synagogue, they would actually go and live in the home of a rabbi and study under a rabbi, okay? So you're no longer going to a synagogue for your education. Now you're going into the home of a rabbi, and you're studying under a rabbi. And here's how it worked as you studied under a rabbi. The students or the disciples listened to what the rabbi said, 
walked where the rabbi walked, ate what the rabbi ate, and slept where the rabbi slept. So they did all the things that a rabbi would do. By imitating the way of their rabbi every day, they not only came to know what the rabbi knew, so it wasn't only just about head knowledge, but also learned how to do what the rabbi did and so became like their rabbi. This is way more than just getting the right facts and information into their heads. That's part of it. But this is a replication of the rabbi's life in the life of the disciple so that the disciple actually lives life like the rabbi lives his life. It is the reproduction of the life of a rabbi into the life of a disciple. Every rabbi holds out their life as a template, and the disciple lives in copy of that template. And this is what is happening when Jesus extends his call to Matthew. And this is why Matthew leaves his job collecting taxes, because he knows that he is being invited into the opportunity of a lifetime. Someone as low on the social totem pole as Matthew is now getting invited into Beth Talmud, getting to be a disciple of a rabbi. And he knows that his life of collecting taxes is no longer compatible with the life that he will live studying as a disciple under the rabbi Jesus. You following me so far? There's a lot of background, historical background, understanding what's going on here. Okay? And furthermore, Matthew would have made every house he went into ceremonially unclean, but yet when Jesus calls him, Matthew throws a party for Jesus at his house, and Jesus goes straight into the house of a tax collector. And that's so counterintuitive that Jesus knows his house is ceremonially unclean, but he goes right in, and Matthew holds the banquet with Jesus as the guest of honor because Matthew is now following Jesus. Matthew is now building his life upon the life of the tecton, Jesus. So you have this tecton, this stonemason Jesus, who is extending the template of his life to his disciples and saying, follow the template. From one builder to another, build your life upon my life. He is reproducing himself in the lives of his disciples according to the template of his life. That's what he's doing here. That's what he's doing with Matthew. Is Matthew gets the opportunity to redraw the plans of his life, not around being a tax collector who's despised and rejected, but around the Messiah, Jesus. It's a total reorientation for his life, that his identity is no longer tied to his toll booth, but that now his identity is being tied to the identity of the tecton, Jesus. That's what's happening. So back to our learning community. God's been drawing this theme of discipleship, this life on life, this replication of following in the way of Jesus in the life of another out of us. And as part of this learning community, you have goals that you have to set. So the learning community had to set goals for the next six months. So between now and our next immersion this summer, what do we expect to be done with? All right? And we obviously wanted to make the goal attainable. So they kind of walk you through in these baby steps where you set goals for the next six months, set goals for the next six months, work the plan, work the plan. That's kind of how this works, okay? So our goal is really simple, but our goal is attainable. But the learning community has decided that every single person in the learning community, by the time we go to our next immersion, would have identified a person of peace in their life and ideally begin meeting with that person of peace and begin pouring into that disciple, that follower, right? That every single person in the learning community would have identified someone into whom they could begin pouring their life, into whom they can begin building their life of following Jesus. 
And we're starting with the learning community because it would be disingenuous of us to call you all to something that we're not doing ourselves. It's starting with the learning community because when we call as a church to making disciples, we can say, we're already doing it. So we're starting with the learning community, and ideally, this is part of us launching a discipleship culture here in that we, we really hope that this doesn't end with the learning community, but that this takes root here as a body at Grace 242. So essentially, we as a learning community have said, we're going to be tectons, and we're going to take the template of our lives, and we're going to extend that to persons of peace, and we're going to extend that to a disciple that the Holy Spirit brings to our hearts. We're going to begin to replicate our lives in the lives of a person who is open to being with us, right? Person of peace being someone who is open to you. That's what we're deciding to do as a learning community. Oh, that was not good. I dream of a day when we could ask everybody at Grace 242, who are you discipling or who is discipling you? And every single one of us can supply a name to that question. Every single one of us could either say, I am discipling so-and-so or so-and-so is discipling me. I dream of a day when everyone would be functioning in either a rabbi role or a disciple role. I want a church that's full of one of two people, rabbis or disciples. Both and. I'll take both and as well. I've been thinking a lot, folks, about the fact that we are not a normal church in the sense that we are a geographically stratified body. We got people from everywhere in here, which is awesome. We have people from Mequon, we have people from Cedarburg, we have people from Germantown, we have people from Milwaukee, Wauwatosa, we have people from Glendale, we have people from uh, Port Washington, we have people from Oostburg, we have people, I, I mean, I, I'm sorry if I missed you, West Bend, we got people from everywhere. So in that sense, we're not a community church because we're in all these communities. So what does that mean for us? It means that if we're going to have a kingdom impact, it means that when we disperse from this place and when we all go back to our own individual communities, that we need to be an agent of the kingdom so the kingdom can break into our individual communities that we all disperse to. And I just think about the fact that if we dream of a day when every single one of us is either being a disciple or being a rabbi, think of the kingdom impact that that could have in all of our respected communities that we disperse to. Because now we got people who are going back to their community, their neighborhood in Mequon, and they're discipling their neighbors. And now we got people who are going back to their jobs at Rockwell Automation, and they're, dis they're discipling their coworkers. And now we got people who are going back to their community in Port Washington, and they're discipling their family members. And all of these little kingdom inbreakings are happening outside of the walls of our church. Think of the impact that that could have to the kingdom if every single one of us is either being discipled by someone or is being a rabbi in our respective communities that we all disperse to. I'm getting excited about this, folks. That is the way forward, in my opinion. That is the way forward. I dream of a day when we can all function as disciples or rabbis. 
don't know what else to say. That's what I dream of. That's what my heart beats for.